Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Lindsay. I'm Jay. And this is our review of The Third Man, starring Joseph Cotton, Alita Valley, Orson Welles, and Trevor Howard, directed by Carol Reed, released in 1949, and is considered the most popular film of the year in British cinema. Jay, what's your background with this one? Lindsay, I know I've seen this sometime in previous years. Like one of those moments when, I don't know, one of your cinephile friends gets on you because you haven't seen enough Orson Welles stuff or whatever. And I, I know it was on like TBS or TMC, one of those channels, like when I was in my college years and I saw it because I know like the Ferris wheel and the cuckoo clock speech and all that stuff. But it had been decades since i even thought about this one so i don't have a huge background with this you came up with this one i want to know what your background with this one is because you're like you know the book you know the whole thing i do so i one summer had to take a couple of credits so that i could graduate on time in college and one of those well three of those credits consisted of a lit and film class and we did this uh book and movie So I had to buy both, and it's been one of my favorite classics ever since. Very cool. Very cool. I don't don't know that the Orson Welles movies where he's not the major thing get talked about enough. Like people tend to default to the stuff where he's such an overwhelming presence to it. Um, but this one is one that has kind of its own Steven Spielberg, Toby Hooper, poltergeist, like rumor, like there's all this that, oh, he really directed all of it. But in more recent years and everything I've ever read was that that's not really fair to Carol Reed. That was somebody who Wells worked with a lot and certainly had influence on him, but he, he really didn't direct this. He's just a bit part in this uh, noir tale. Yeah. And it's build like he is such a huge character in the movie. And then when he doesn't show up until so late in the movie, it's like, Oh, there he is. And actually I think I have, I do. So I have um, the DVD case right here. Like I said, I bought it and on the back, it has Orson Welles in giant, giant type. And so he's one of the top build actors, but like you said, just a bit part. I think that had to probably do with more reputation and just being able to sell the movie to an audience because people would know him at the time like they would now too. And his name would sell. I mean, Joseph Cotton was somebody from the time they knew Alita Volley went just by Volley on the poster. (laughs) So everybody knew who she was overseas. And then Trevor Howard was an actor that we know, and you didn't mention him in the opening, but Bernard Lee, beloved M from James Bond is in this. Yeah of a bit part and then a bunch of other people i've never heard of and, I, and, and to be fair i don't know carol reed's work until i like looked up the filmography i was like oh, okay yeah i've seen some more of these things um i've seen some of this work the cinematographer did we'll get into that i guess as we go but yeah, this one was um 
was a blast from the past because I didn't take a class for it. It was just one of those like, hey, you should watch this. And so I did. But I did pull this out of my library locally. So, that you know, if you're looking for this movie, gang, you're not going to find it streaming anywhere. You got to go either have the Criterion Collection and whatever their streaming service is, or you go to the library or you go to archive.org and you find it that way. But yeah, it's yeah. it's running around. I was fascinated that this got made into a radio play as well. And watching it, I, I thought, well, this really lends itself to that kind of thing. It does. And also just a quick plug, if you want to read the book, you should also be able to find that at your local library as well. The adaptation to the film from the book was very good as well. That doesn't always happen, especially now. Um, but the the dialogue, as you said, definitely lends itself to to doing a radio, a radio play, which I did not know, actually. So learn something tonight. So now you you read the book when you saw the movie the first time too, and you say they're pretty close together in in adaptation. Yeah, there are there are some key differences in the characterizations, but for the most part, the film is pretty true to the book. I'd give it ninety to ninety two percent true to the book. I mean, dialoguing, yeah, dialogue included. So a lot of the dialogue is is almost verbatim. I think that's neat when, so. when novellas get adapted because they're not really long anyway. So they, they almost work like scripts in a way. Yep. That's the hardest part of like taking a 700 page Tom Clancy book and trying to make a two hour movie out of that. Looking at you without remorse on Amazon and trying, <laughs> trying to incorporate, you know, something that was written in the eighties to now and, and do all that. You, you can't imagine the adaptation work or what that's like, but something that's a little shorter, it, like you said, it almost functions like a script anyway. Yeah. And the book itself is a writer writing about a writer, which writers like to write about. And the writer in the script and in the film kind of trying to insert himself into essentially his own, his own cheap novella. Yeah, what do you think that is, by the way, just as an aside, like why, why is it, such an easy gateway is it just because that's the world and the mindset that a writer knows so it's easy to make a character out of yourself yeah i think so i don't think even if it's fiction nothing a writer writes about is fully fictionalized you know it's all taken from what they know and their own life experiences i've known a few writers some good some not great but they're all they all function relatively you know, relatively similarly. And actually, even in the book, there's a moment where they talk about how writers write about what they know. Don't listen to anyone who tells you otherwise. Yeah. And well, and I, as you're saying that, I'm sitting here thinking about all the John Grisham novels I've consumed in my life <laughs> and, and the movies I've seen too, but I, I've read a lot more of his stuff than there are that I've seen the movies of. And he writes about what he knows as well, which is southern lawyers and so particularly yeah. in mississippi patricia cornwell writing about forensics you know they write about their thing yeah you do you do what you do so well Lindsay, i think this one is one that pe people may be aware of it maybe they haven't seen it or like me it's been a while so why don't you give everybody a plot summary tell them what the heck the third man's about yeah let's get into it so the third man starts when holly martins accepts a job in post-world war ii vienna from his childhood friend harry lime now, grateful for the work, Martins arrives to learn Lime was killed after being hit by a car. 
And from talking to Lyme's friends and associates, Martins soon notices that some of the stories are inconsistent and determines to discover what really happened. So as he investigates, Martins develops a conspiracy theory after learning of a third man present at the time of Lyme's death. But he faces interference from British officer Major Calloway. Quick side note, Martins also falls for Lyme's grief-stricken lover, Anna. Now, Martins uncovers that Lyme was the leader of a gang that robbed penicillin from the military hospital to adulterate and resell it. This has resulted in many dead or sick children in the area. Martins visits Anna the evening he discovers this tidbit of information, and while divulging the news, notices someone hiding and watching from a darkened doorway. A shaft of light reveals the person to be Lyme. Lyme flees and vanishes through the sewers, but in the meantime, the British police exhume Lyme's coffin and discover that the body is that of the orderly who stole the penicillin for Lyme. The next day, Martins meets Lyme, and they ride Vienna's Ferris wheel, where Lyme reveals the full extent of his plan. And fast forward a little bit, Lyme arrives at a small cafe to rendezvous with Martins, who has laid a trap for him with the authorities. Anna warns Lyme that the police are closing in, and he tries once again to escape using the sewer tunnels. Lyme is injured in a gunfight and cannot escape as Martins finally catches up to him and kills him. Martins attends Lyme's second funeral, after which he tries to speak with Anna, who brushes him off, walking away as he prepares to catch a flight out of Vienna. It's a really good tight plot summary, and it leads us through the twists. And obviously, spoilers hot and heavy in this one. And th that's the twist in the noir genre, right? There's always something you, you don't expect, or there's the big reveal. And the the trope nowadays is that the reveals in the third act, but in this one and more traditionally, it is in the second act. It's usually the thing that kicks off the third act is when you realize, Oh, it's not who we seem or, Oh, it's, you know, Dr. Schmendrick in the corner or whatever. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Yes, exactly. So lots of twists and turns. I think right off the bat and the book does the same thing. Like I said, very true to the book right off the bat, the film does a great job of casting. You know exactly who the bad guys are. Kurtz looks like a bad guy. Yes. He has that tiny little evil dog, which is the way everybody recognizes him. Yes. <laughs> In the book, it's actually a toupee, not a dog. Everybody knows him by his gaudy toupee. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, they call a bad toupee a dog. I mean, that's yeah. You know, <laughs> so that, yeah, I can um, get that. <laughs> but he still has this one little calling card in the face like you just know, you know, that he's he's a bad guy. And normally music would be telling about, you know, the bad guy. And we're going to take a little sidestep here before talking about some of the other major characters. Jay, I know we talked about this on the side. I'd like to talk about the music in this movie. Yeah. And how it. How it goes totally against what I expect from this kind of thriller. You did the dun dun dun, like that's what you expect in noir yep. thrillers. But you get Anton Karras doing this entire score on a zither, which is if you if you've seen it, kids, you probably had somebody come to your elementary school and play songs for you on it when you were a kid. It's like this harp meets guitar meets dulcimer looking thing. It has a very unique stringed sound. But out of it, you can get this this kaleidoscope of noise. 
And I'm blown away by that choice of score for this because it immediately sets two things for me. I was like, this is a very European movie. Indeed, this is not what Americans would do. So there's that level of it. And it's almost this bouncy, happy kind of go along with it when the story is about a guy who steals penicillin, waters it down, and it causes like meningitis and children and kills all these people. And he just blows it off like it's no big deal. Like that's menacing. And then you have dum behind it. It's so counter to what I expected. So that, and I haven't seen this movie in a while. So I had completely forgotten about the music and the second it started and we well not the second it started but when we get to the funeral scene in the book it's so heavy martin's is sobbing anna is sobbing everyone else is very somber because they're not really lime's friends but they're there to make a show and the music is so silly and upbeat and i was like well this isn't at all what the book was like and it kind of primed me and then about halfway through the movie I wasn't watching it myself like by myself but the other person I was watching was goes what is up with this music (laughs) and I said I know and this is this is what kind of brought it home for me is and what makes the music kind of brilliant and I would never have realized this had I not been watching it with someone else He goes, I just, I feel like, I feel like I should be walking down. Like, I feel like I should be watching a film in some, you know, giddy up bar or something. And I said, oh, that makes perfect sense because Martin's writes Western novelettes. He writes bad Western novelettes. And so the music kind of mimics these Westerns that he writes also it's it's kind of like a childish type of music and there are a few points that draw home both in the book and in the movie that Lime never quite has ever grown up and he's so flippant about these things that you should never be flippant about and it's kind of mirroring that as well. But once once I made that Western music connection, it all just kind of exploded for me. That, that is a great call. I had not thought of that at all. And I'm a big fan of Westerns. And hearing you say that, I'm like, yes, it's the template for Leone and all of that stuff that they did. And I, yeah, I can hear it now. And it is, it is very much like the, the, you talk about the counter at that, that funeral scene and you say in the book, everybody's sobbing and putting on a show. This is like the most boring funeral ever. No one seems to have any emotion about this man at all. Even his, you know, woman that's there, his, his compadre, none of his friends, quote unquote, are doing anything. And even Martin's himself is just seemed to be kind of stunned because I mean, let's give the old boy a, a pass. He rolls off the train. He ain't got no money. He came there because his friend offered him a job. He's like, sure. Cause writing these dime store uh, Western novels, ain't making any money. So sure. I'll do it. And they tell him the guy's dead. And he has to learn that in like the most broken English. Cause the poor porter at the house doesn't speak English. He's like car hit man, you know, and all he's <laughs> trying to translate German. He doesn't know it. And, and it's it's funny because you get around all these other people and you realize how 
sort of worldly they are. And I realized this movie is making a commentary on Americans that you think you're so sophisticated, but if you ever go anywhere outside of your own landmass, you don't have any idea what the rest of the world is like. And, and it, I think it's neat to talk about Vienna too, post-World War II. And they do that in that opening voiceover. It's divided into like five sectors amongst the allies, you know, at the time. So it's just like going from different country to different country or, or mm -hmm. like walking through the Epcot center at Disney. If you've done that, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's not un, unlike that. At least that's how I related to it as a dumb American, but I like Martin's as our vehicle into this because we'd be just the fish out of water as he is. But to me, the music in that funeral scene is telling me now knowing the movie and knowing what the, you know, the story is of it is, oh, it's telling me don't take any of this very seriously because the real serious stuff is to come later. And rather than use dramatic music to point at those scenes, like when Lime sneaks out of the shadows and stuff, you notice there's no music. It's just silence. And it, I don't know. I thought that was, it was a neat way to introduce and pull in and out of a score. Yeah, which like the only other movie I can think of, at least recently, that does that is I think No Country for Old Men yeah, does the, the no music thing. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. and you could see like the Coens would eat this. It probably knows this movie backward and forward. Like this is their kind of thing for sure. Yeah, yeah. So we move on from the funeral. So let's see. At the funeral, we are introduced to Anna for the first time, and Martin's pretty much falls in love with her at first sight and which he and this is one of the character differentiators between the book and the movie is in the book martins is painted as someone who just really loves women he the way he talks about them he calls uh different women he's dated incidents <laughs> so he has an incident in Vienna and an incident in England and an incident and, you know, and he calls them mixing his drinks if he's dating multiple women at the same time. So he's very well known as this like womanizer and super suave. And he's almost completely opposite in that sense in this movie. You know, he doesn't really... There are a few call outs to it in a couple of scenes, but he clearly is just head over heels for Anna right off the bat. Yeah. Joseph Cotton has a presence that he's just very easy. You know, he's, he's kind of Gary Cooperish in a lot of ways. He just kind of slides into the scene and you're like, you know, this guy's just kind of happy to be there. He's not really got anything going for him in life, but that's okay. He's not a total loser either. And he seems to be nice. And of course he's enamored with her. The first time he sees her is on stage. She's playing in a comedy and it's in German and he can't understand any of it, but he's still just enamored with her. And what I, what I love about Anna and again, the, the actress who, who uh, you know, played her, uh, I, you know, I kind of poked fun at the, you know, the volley, you go by the one name, but you don't get that unless you have like great reputation. And I looked up her stuff and holy cow, like she was like the, the biggest thing on sliced bread for years when it came to stage and screen. What I love about her and the Anna character, and I'm curious to hear if this is what she is in the book, is she has no mind for this guy at all. Like she clearly is not interested in him, she, but he's also not so overly aggressive that it becomes like a problem. She just sort of humors him because it's worth it. And I love one of the little character moments she says when, when she's trying to run lines for a play 
and he says is it a tragedy or a comedy and he, she's like i don't do tra- dramas or tragedies i just do comedies but but she says it in such a droll way i'm like why <laughs> you're not funny you have no sense of humor at all and it, i just i don't know i thought i thought she was a real funny study in character that way yeah those who can't do act i guess that's <laughs> that's uh that's where she's going with that but no she's she also was not at all interested in him in um, the book either, at least not for most of it. Um, I'll get to one small discrepancy toward the end, but I won't spoil everything for everyone right now. But um, she, there's one moment where he tells her that he loves her, and this happens in the movie too. And she basically is like, you're an idiot you don't know me I don't even know your name like I don't know your first name and there's this she's always calling him the wrong name (laughs) and and she you know is definitely not into him at all but she's still in love with Lyme you know who can blame her her heart's still broken well and that's what I wanted to ask you because I I had questions about this because again having not remembered it from my youth and now watching it again she constantly calls Martin's Harry instead of Holly his his first Mm -hmm. name um and and he keeps correcting her on it and he finally gets kind of (laughs) angry about it at one point like please stop calling me Harry I'm not Harry so that should have been clue number one to him that hey she's not she she's just not that into you Holly but but what I wanted to ask you was was she in on it on some level or was she really just in love with Lyme and he had helped her get those forged papers so she could, you know, not be claimed by the Russians being from Czechoslovakia. And that's why she's upset that he's dead or on the run or whatever. When do you think she knew he was still alive or did she always know? Cause I can't tell you. So in the book, she didn't know until Martin's told her um, in the movie, she acts like she knew previously, but um but she didn't care. And so I don't think she was ever in on it. I just think because she's very straightforward with Martin's about this, that knowing something new about a person shouldn't change how you feel about them because they should still be the same person that they were to you to begin with. Like their, their relationship with you does not change just because you learn more about someone. And which is, I don't know. I feel like, and maybe I'm completely wrong. I I'm going to play a stupid American card here for a minute and just say, I feel like that's just a very Russian way of thinking is, you know, like, because I heard once that the only exchange rate in Russia is honesty. Hmm. And so they're brutally honest with each other. And so it's, you know, that's just, that's how you trust other people is you just trust that everyone's being brutally honest with you. And that's a very Russian trait. And so she's always very brutally honest. It's true to a point, except for most of the people in charge of Chernobyl. And I would just put that out well, there. You know, in as, general, as but, but you're not wrong. <laughs> the general per- populace. And I think you're not wrong in particularly this era of Russian history. We, we got to talk about like what post-World War II Russia was before this is a world where the Americans and the Russians are allies and it's not tense Mm -hmm. allies. We're friends. We don't do things the same way, but we get along and it's things start to fall apart in the years after here. And that's when, you know, all the tensions rise in the cold war and all that kind of good stuff. But I I think you're onto something there. And that's an interesting character trait to have her play that so well, because 
I mean, she says it outright. She's a Czech, and that's why she has forged papers because she didn't want to be claimed by the Russians when mm-hmm. the war settled. She wanted to be able to move about, so she acts like she's Dutch, you know, which is why she goes by the name Schmidt, which is not a Czech name at all, you know. Which is basically Smith. That's yeah. basically if someone got a fake ID with the name John Smith on it, that's what she got. Yeah. And it's almost like. like You'd think Lime would be a little more creative than that, but he. You know, I mean, not. like her real name is probably Anastasia Schlablonklia or something like that, you know. And, and but she changes it to Anna Schmidt because Vince McMahon demands it, you know, or whatever. I mean, that's that's kind of what it is. And that, <laughs> I, I mean, really, the, I'm making that joke, but like Harry Lime is not that different from a lot of other Carney Barkers in the world. It's, I mean, he is in it for his ends. And if you're there for it, then fine. And if you're not, well, okay, just go your way, old boy. And, you know, we'll be all right. And I, I don't know. I, I really liked her though, because so many times the trope in this movie is the damsel in distress gets swept off her feet by the dashing detective person. Right. And if you really look at the roots where this movie begins, a lot of these things, that's not really true. And it's also not really true to life either. And I I appreciated the fact that she didn't really give him the time of day. And it was sort of a cute thing that went on between them. Like he desperately wants her attention and she is having none of it, even up until the very end. And he realizes like, Oh, oh, well, I can't do anything about that. She's always, I don't want to say cold, but she's just accepts things the way they are. So when she gets picked up by the authorities, she just puts her clothes on and goes out. When they first pick her up, when they first scoop her up, and you have the four uh, quadrants of police officers there. So you've got um, the Russians, the Americans, the French, and the British. And there is a funny line in the book that says, There's always something funny when this type of thing happens. And in this situation, the Russian wanted to stand his ground in the room, had no lust or love or anything whatsoever for Anna. He was just doing his duty. The American wanted to protect her. And even in the film, he was like, oh, here's this, you know, like being really nice to her, wanted to protect her out of an air of chivalry. The Frenchman thought it was hilarious and the British guy just didn't know what to do next. Yeah. It was a <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's a like, good time to talk about Sergeant Payne and Major Calloway that way, because they, they are so fun as they're the cops we spend the most time with in, in this whole thing, because they're the ones that really drive the story forward as it were. And Trevor Howard's Major Calloway and then Bernard Lee's playing Sergeant Payne, his right hand or whatever. And you get this sense of like, they have a militarization to them. And I don't mean in the way they act. I mean, in the way like their order works and that they, they're always kind of following chain of commands and stuff like that, that it mm-hmm. that's the way to get them flustered is to get something out of order. And the British are very in order and you get this out of order and now it's a problem. And, and I don't know. I liked how they, they came off first as like these sort of not bumblers, but people that were flustered by the fact that things weren't going the way they wanted to. But later on, you see how smart they are and that that methodical pace of going through stuff is actually how you should investigate. And it's rather dispassionate, but it's a neat way of, of operating. I don't know. I, I liked both of them. I thought they were great presence on, on the screen, especially Callaway. I really liked it when he he's the one that really unveils a lot of like the lime uh, alleged crimes and stuff and the way he does it and he's not above subterfuge either because he finally turns martin's own his friend by taking him to the hospital showing the sick kids i'm like man that's some geraldo stuff right there 
Yeah. I actually, before the sick kid scene, I really liked, I don't know if we could really call it a montage, but it was montage-esque where he's showing Martin's all of the evidence against slime and it cuts to a few different frames of him showing the fingerprints and the penicillin and and all of that what did you make out of that they have like film they have like film strip eight millimeter fingerprint (laughs) evidence that they're kind of you know framing on i was like wow like it i mean i wasn't alive when that existed so it's really neat for me to see that you imagine now like you know csi every csi show somebody has like a palm you know held up projector that throws like an entire computer screen of every fingerprint in the world <laughs> up you know on their phone or whatever and i don't know it's, it's quite to see something like that when i realized like man my iphone that i unlock with my thumbprint has a lot more information on it than these people had <laughs> but they you know won the war and solved all kinds of stuff so i it's just neat to see and it is quaint i think you're right to call it a montage it is a montage because that care score carries us through it and it's Mm -hmm. almost like i have to remind myself like we're not that far from the era of silent movies where the music and the subtitles told the story and the acting was just acting out there was no you know talking the talkies came around in the 20s and the 30s when we were watching the marx brothers and all that stuff so this isn't that far removed from that world no and it's I was gonna try to tie it back into that music but you know I I think they already we already went down that music path they clearly used it to their advantage how they wanted to use it back to Callaway I also like how it does kind of seem like he always has a least a little bit of a plan forming. So even when Martin's throws everything out the window and is like, I'm not going to help you anymore. Callaway just goes, well, all right. I always wanted you to get on that plane anyway. And he very, you know, smoothly walks to the car and he goes, Oh, do you mind? I just need to, I need to make a stop first and then takes him by that children's hospital. And it's like, Oh, that was slick. Nice plan B, Major Calloway. Yeah. I I like, though, too, that there are parts of the, particularly the British in town, that kind of fawn over this American author. Like, oh, come speak to our literary society. (laughs) And this pulp writer gets in there and they're asking him, so what what role does Joyce play? And he's like, I don't know, a role. Like, he, you know, you can tell, like, he doesn't read anything. He just writes cowboy stories. And, and he talks about his favorite author being Zane Gray. And as somebody who grew up with my dad read all the Zane Gray. So I read a lot of that as a kid to hear him drop that. And everybody in the room sort of go, you know, sideways look at him. And you almost feel like the pearls being clutched by the, by the <laughs> literary people. I, I got a kick out of that. I was like, this movie takes time to do comedy in the middle of all this, you know, mystery. And I think that's, it's an early sign of how you pace a good story is you can't keep people ratcheted up in tension the whole time. Every now and then you got to let them loose. Right. Yeah. And and, I mean, Shakespeare knew that, you know, when you had the the deep drama, there was always some random scene of just goofy stuff happening. Right. Just to give everybody a breath and same, same with this. And so I, I enjoyed that. I thought it was funny. And I thought the way cotton played it off was, was hilarious. And that that moment happens after a moment of really high tension because he gets whisked away in that British vehicle. And as he's, you know, being driven away and super fast and you think like, oh, he's going to die. And then he just shows up and Brian, who I was watching it with, goes, wait, 
what just happened? <laughs> and I said, nothing. <laughs> That's the point. Absolutely nothing happened. He's exactly, exactly where he should be. Yeah. And that, and that's the funny thing about this movie, I think, is when you expect something to go a certain way and it doesn't, it, it, you, you're you off put by it or I feel off kilter about it. But then I realized the same. It's like, no, but it's exactly where it's supposed to be. This is all unfolding the way you want to. And that's what I think makes this movie so smart is the the trope in noir thrillers is that sometimes they trip over themselves trying to be clever. Right. And this one, it it's pretty simple. Like Lime faked his death. He killed off the guy. He had the guy killed who helped him steal the stuff. And now he's just going to get away because they're not going to bother with him in the Russian zone, you know, because they don't care what he does. They leave him alone. And what's he doing? And also his philosophy on life is not so dissimilar from sort of their, and in the great scheme of things, this is really just a drop in the bucket. Yeah. That speech at the, both at the top and the bottom of that Ferris wheel were pretty heavy. Um, he talks about the, you know, little gnats. Like if I, you know, if someone tells you you can get X dollars for each little dot, would you not take it seriously? And it's like, we're not, we're not talking about dots. And Martin's obviously not agreeing with him. It's like, you're, you're not my friend anymore. <laughs> well, yeah, well, Harry Lum is, it, it's time to talk about him too. Cause again, he doesn't show up until the back third of the movie. Yeah. He's just a presence looming over this thing. But his whole characterization is that in the grand scheme of things, this isn't that bad. And this is, you know, again, his, he didn't say it outright, but we're coming off of the, you know, six years, five years after some of the greatest atrocities ever committed. And, you know, modern history. Yeah. And so on one hand, he's got a point. On the other hand, no, you're still a thief and a liar. <laughs> you caused a lot of people's deaths. So you can't moralize your way out of it. But what I what I enjoy about the way that Orson Welles plays him is he doesn't play him big or small. He plays him so straight. He plays him like a salesman. And yeah. I thought that was so cool. I mean, that whole bit on the Ferris wheel is just a sales job. And even when he steps out of the light, I mean, that cat curls around his feet, you know, it's his kitty cat and, and all this. And you're like, of course, Harry Lyme would be somebody who would attract the cat and would attract you know people because he's just so darn unassuming and so fun. Like you can imagine, like he'd be great at your table at a party. Yeah, so smooth. And those, like we know Harry Lyme as a character. So his little facial expressions, though, that he gives are perfection. It's just, it is very salesman-like, but very disarming. So even as a consumer of, a viewer of this movie and this content, I'm watching it knowing the kind of person that Harry Lyme is. And still the second he gives that little like, you know, sideways grin, it's like, oh, okay, it's just Orson Welles. <laughs> right, yeah. Like, yeah that's <laughs> you know, thing. and it totally yeah. catches you off guard. Yeah, that, and that's the power of Wells, I think, on the screen as a presence is to yeah. just bring you in and you just want to sit down and listen to him and you, you get on the Ferris wheel with him and you hear mm -hmm. his whole speech and stuff. And I think we, we we need to talk about the Ferris wheel thing, too, because it's it's probably one of the best scenes 
of the off kilter shots, what they call the Dutch angle, which I don't know. That's cinematography talk. I don't know any of that stuff. But DP Robert Krasker <laughs> won an Oscar for this. He's the first Australian to win one. It took 40 years for somebody else to get another one. And you can see why. Like, even when we reveal Harry and he gets away the first time that we see him run down the sewers and stuff, it's always at this side angle. It's the war-torn Vienna. But he uses those sharp angles to show you that this straight-laced people are in a jagged world. And I, don't know, I, I thought that was so neat to watch Orson Welles in that rocking Ferris wheel spin this yarn about, oh, it's really not that big a deal. And how many of them would you really care about tax free, by the way, tax free old man, you know, he's just, he's, oh he's, yeah. He's putting on the great Gatsby there. And it's, it's hilarious. There are just to talk about the cinematography a little bit more because there are so many beautiful shots in this movie. I think it's worth talking about just a touch longer there are a number of staircase shots, too. There's one in particular, like going up this spiral staircase that's just almost dizzying when you look at. Yeah. And the lighting was so, especially on Anna, when she was in, whenever she's in an apartment or, you know, flat or whatever, the lighting on her face is so striking and there is one scene, and it might actually be one of the scenes where she is picked up by the authorities. I cannot remember now. But there's a back room, and she's walking out, and someone turns the light off. And I don't know why this stuck out to me so far, but the whole room behind her goes black completely. And then it's just her standing in this light. And it's like, it's just so well executed. I'm so glad you called that out. And then when Lime reveals himself from that darkened doorway, mm -hmm. I realized one of my very favorite cinematographers of all time, Dean Cundy, totally homaged this in the cheapy Halloween that he made with that little light bulb <laughs> in the corner on Michael Myers' face. It was literally a you know dimmer on a bulb, but it's the same effect both times. And I, when I saw that, I was like, Oh, Dean Cundy studied this. Like you can tell, like <laughs> this is his kind of thing. And he's of the age of, yeah, this is what he would have studied in film school and what he would have grown up with and, you know, seen this play so many times. And I, I love that too, because these people coming out of these shadows to be so stark, it's to illuminate them. And it, it, it's supposed to, I think it's supposed to give us reason to really buy into them and care about their plight. And what you realize is that, they're kind of cold and menacing people. Like everybody here is deeply flawed in some way. Martin's because he's just kind of a happy-go-lucky, you know, nothing going for him. Anna because she's she's deceptive and she's kind of cold, and you know, you don't get what her her role in all this is. And of course, Lime because he's the crime of the century, you know, happening underneath them. And to show them in those stark contrasts of dark and and light is. I don't know. It's illuminating. It's neat. It's great cinematography. And it gives so much more weight to the words that they say and what they don't say. Like I said before, the coolest thing about those big reveal scenes is that there's no music. It's just mm -hmm. quiet. It's the quiet of life going beneath you. And I don't know. I, I love that. I want to, I want to live on that Ferris wheel forever. Like to just hear those guys have a <laughs> conversation. Like I can only imagine, and I'm asking you because you're the actor among us here when you're in a scene with somebody and you're just getting to do that back and forth like that, that's gotta be really charging. Like I don't know how many times they did it, but both of those actors really brought something to that. Yeah. I, I, have no idea how many times they would have done it, but 
it is especially when you have a certain chemistry with another actor it's it's special i don't know how else to describe it and and yeah you absolutely feed off of each other's energy and it gets passed back and forth and um and if they're lucky they did it a lot they you know filmed that scene quite a few times and rehearsed it quite a few times because half the fun is playing with playing with a little bit of improv and and getting into that character and figuring out how they would react so now you said a lot of the dialogue from the book translated over did did a lot of that come straight from the book is that pretty well lines out of the out of the prose yep yep that that's uh i don't know if it's verbatim but it is very close to the book i think the cool thing though that's not in the book and it's one of the most famous pieces of this is the orson wells cuckoo clock speech and if if you want to understand what orson wells impact as an actor is Go YouTube that third man cuckoo clock speech and watch that man in 30 seconds show you what modern acting for an, for a movie actor should be. He conveys everything about Harry Lyme in just a few sentences. It's a total justification. I'm not going to quote it directly, but because the story is that they were looking for something that was more timing and beat. And Wells said he pulled that out of some old play. But he he does this bit about how in Italy they had 30 years of just terror and bloodshed, but they got Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci and the Renaissance out of it. And in Switzerland, they loved each other for 500 years of democracy and all they got was the cuckoo clock. See you later. And and I was like, what a great <laughs> mic drop. Because it's, I was it's, just about to say that. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's twisted logic. But what he's saying is that, you know, if you think I've done something really horrible here, friend, well, out of horrible things, out of adversity come some of the most beautiful things ever. So it's mm -hmm. okay that we, you know, not everything's hunky dory. Get off your high horse and join me, but don't bring the police with you when I see you again. And I don't know. I just, I just love this. It's just, a, again, a time capsule piece. And again, not an actor, but I'm sitting there watching this man go like, I, I, please read the phone book to me. Because that, <laughs> the delivery of that is just so amazing. I, I can't get over it. It's so striking. And you really just hang on every word. Every word just sinks in, or at least it did, in my brain. And then he just leaves. That's it. That's that. Yeah. But but it he works because it Martins goes back to the cops and says, I can't mm -hmm. help you. But he's convinced him. And it's not until the little sideshow at the uh, the children's hospital that it's like, okay, I pull, you pulled on my heartstrings enough with this. And again, this is 1949. We're not showing anything. There's some baby crying sounds in the background, probably real children crying in the background and just some cribs with, with high, you know, bars up. So yes, poor child had meningitis could have been treated if it was good penicillin, but oh, well, I guess you don't care. You know, and it, oh. Well, Anna also influences um, Martin's to not assist the authorities too, because she's just like, he was still your friend. I get that he's a terrible person, but we don't do that. You can't do yeah. that. That's not right. And he was like, this isn't right. He shouldn't. And then because he loves her, he, you know, and what she's saying makes sense to him. He's so it, I think it was Lime's speech coupled with Anna's speech. And then he goes back to the authorities and is like, I'm not doing this. 
I mean, people all the time talk about how the end of the original Fast and Furious rips off Point Break when the cop <laughs> lets the guy that he's befriended get away, you know, one last time. And I'm like, no, it's the same here. This is the same thing. And it's the same thing she's saying is he's still your friend, even though he does something horrible. He's still your friend. And I, I like the way that she plays that. Again, it's so black and white. It's such a contrast to Martin's, who's just kind of a mess of things. You know, <laughs> he's a mix of all this stuff, and he's he's emotional and he's gone. But eventually, he does set the trap. And I gotta say, I, I really like the ending of this, where he tries to get through the sewers again. Lime starts running. They get in the gunfight, and I mean, you talk about this is a style of acting that doesn't exist anymore, except in just harsh comedy. There's a gunshot that rings out, and Sergeant Payne just stops in his tracks and just <laughs> falls over. It's like, oh, but you can imagine in 1949, people were like. Oh, just blown yeah. away by seeing something like that on the screen. Right. And then the resolve in Martin's face of like, I'm going to take the gun. And this one man walking loudly down that sewer goes to, you know, finish off his friend who gets shot in the back and is probably dead anyway. But that's another great piece of Orson Welles acting is he's on the, the steps and he turns around and he just gives like the slightest little nod. And I was like, Oh, that's so good. That's so clever. Yeah, that was that was really good. And then and then, you know, you know that Martin's finished the job. Yeah, because you don't even see it. It's just a loud nope. noise and Calloway mm-hmm. looks up. So, we Or gotta... do you know? Because we oh. never see the body. Oh, now you've introduced another twist in my head because <laughs> I'm pretty sure he was dead because that next funeral, man, nobody's having a good time. The priest is like, whatever, it doesn't dirt <laughs> on him. <laughs> Hole was already dug. It's fine. Right? I mean, yeah. But I got to ask you about the ending here. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I really wish Martins had listened to his police friend and said, man, you just need to let her go and mm-hmm. get on the plane and get out of here. But he makes him stop just so she can blow him off one more time. And I, I don't know. I, I like that in a way, because the cheap thing to do would be they fall in each other's arms at the end and a big kiss. And we cut the you know credits and I, that would have been cheap to me. Like I wouldn't have liked that as an ending. What'd you think of it? I, Liked it slightly different in the book. It's not a fall into each other's arms situation, but I did like it. My curiosity was, well, what, what's he going to do now? He's just sitting there hanging out, waiting for, I guess, a ride to the airport. I do. This is, I did have this thought. Uh, viewers, when this movie came out, definitely more patient than viewers in the 21st century because that long walk down that tree-lined road took forever and it was beautiful but it was hard to watch as someone who consumes uh largely 21st and late 20th century movies Yeah, if you're a fan of Marvel films, you're not, this is not, I'm like, if you're looking for that, this is not what this one's going to do. Heck, even if you like something like Fatal Attraction or Basic Instinct, this is not the ending that you're going to get. Yeah. Not, this is not Joe Esterhaus. Now, I will say that she doesn't uh, necessarily blow him off in the book. We don't really get to see that, but Martins does ask to get out of the car and he's let out of the car and... In the book, 
the police officer, uh, I'm sorry, I just blanked on his name, um, is narrating the book. And he, his final thought was, well, he always did have a way with women. And so the assumption is that at the end of the book, Anna finally decided that she liked him back. So who knows? Maybe her mind changed after she walked right past him. We don't know. Perhaps we'll never know. Yeah, I guess we never will. I think we're pretty much at the end here. Let's hear your final thoughts and your popcorn rating. Well, I got to tell you, this is one that I think a lot of people will look at as like film homework. And I don't think you really have to absorb this movie that way. I think you can just watch it for what it is as a very much a period piece now, because it's a world that doesn't exist anymore. And just take in the music and the sights and the acting and all the, the atmosphere that this movie creates and then start in your head, a little mental list of all the movies that rip this off. Or, or pay homage to it, however you want to you know, term that. Because the list is long and distinguished. Uh, this is a really good time. And even though it is slow in places and it kind of takes its time, it never felt long to me. It's an hour and 44 minutes or whatever. And it blows right by like a breeze. Like it's a real easy watch. Uh, so definitely recommend. And as far as popcorn ratings go, it's one of the best things we've ever done on film strip in terms of quality of movie for sure. So extra large popcorn for me for the third man. Yeah. Everything you said, ditto. I also love how the screenplay and the film are so close to the original text. I do appreciate that. And it's if you read the book, you just get a little more insight into the characters. So I still highly recommend doing both. But if you're a reader, if not, that's fine, too. You don't have to read the book to enjoy the movie, which is another beautiful thing about it. The cinematography is beautiful. The acting is beautiful. The sound design, which we didn't. Well, we did talk about some is also beautiful. It's just a great, great movie to watch. And as you said, could be considered a homework film. <laughs> so I'm with you. It's been one of my favorite movies for some time. It will continue to be so. And I'm really glad that we got a chance to, to review it here. I'm going to give it an extra large popcorn as well. Very cool. Extra popcorn all the way around. Yes. All right. Well, I think that's it, folks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Filmstrip. You can find all of our episodes at filmstrippodcast.com, where you'll find links to all the places the show exists, Apple, Spotify, Google, you name it, we are there. You can follow the show's social media at Filmstrip Pod on Twitter, Insta, and Facebook. We appreciate your support. For Jay, I'm Lindsay. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.